Father, we come before you and we, uh, we thank you for your word, what it speaks into our life, what it speaks into our heart and our minds, and uh, Lord, how it transforms us, it changes us, it has power, it is living and active. We come before you, God, because you are a God who knows all things. There is nothing hidden from your sight. You are sovereign over all things. We thank for what you've provided for us in the last couple of days that we've gathered with family and friends and the food we've been able to, to eat and we thank you for just the safety we've had in travels, and we ask you to be with our church family who are still traveling, just to watch over them and keep them safe as well. Father, we come before you in this time as we open up your word, and we pray that your spirit would just come and move in power as it already has been doing. Lord, that you would just investigate our hearts and let us become aware of, of what we need to know concerning our relationship with you and, and our role in this world. I pray that your kingdom and will be done in each and every life, including my own. We, we want to lift up the children's church to you right now, and Lord, that you just be as the teachers and speak through them and give the kids ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that is ready to accept your gospel. We just ask that you be glorified throughout this entire building as we open your word and we come before you and we bow down and submit to your authority, for you are Lord, you are God, you are a king. We thank you for being our Savior as well and for giving us your spirit to empower us to do what needs to be done, what you call and commission us to do. So, Lord, use me as an instrument of your righteousness in this moment. As we, again, walk through your word, be our shepherd and guide and lead us to where we need to go. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is not according to your word, according to your will. Uh, again, Lord, you be glorified. We ask you to forgive us if we failed you in any way. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be taking a, about a two-month break from our ongoing series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus as we uh, move into the Christmas season. And this morning's not really a Christmas message, but make your way to the New Testament book of Jude. Uh, Jude is right before the book of Revelation. And as we begin to prepare up our, or to wrap up Thanksgiving and move on to the Christmas season, I felt it'd be a good time for us to take a little pause and take a little break as this becomes a kind of chaotic and hectic and crazy time of year as we're getting from one place to another and we have office parties and staff parties and Christmas parties at school and then we do it together with family and whatever else you have on your, on your schedule or your calendar. We manage our time well this morning. We are not going to be reading through the entire book. Uh, you can read it later. It is only one chapter. It is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's not the shortest, but one of the shortest. But we're going to be drawing out elements that Jude was led to write, uh, being led by the Holy Spirit within this letter. The book opens up in verse 1, Jude, a servant, which means bond servant. He's speaking of how he's bought with a price of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now this James here in verse 1 would have been the half brother of Jesus. He was the one who took over the church in Jerusalem uh, when Peter left. It's also the one bearing his name in the New Testament in the book of James. He wrote that letter as well. This would also make Jude a half-brother of Jesus. He's most likely the brother we've encountered in the gospel known as Judas, but he chose to go by Jude, and we can imagine why after a whole Judas Iscariot event. Um, I mean, I personally in my life have never met an individual named Judas. Has anybody here met somebody named Judas in their life? Yeah, when we were going, we found out we were having a boy before Ethan was born, and we were going through lists of names. Judas was never one that made the list. Now, James did, and James ended up being uh, Ethan's middle name, but uh, 
We can't be sure who Jude in this moment is writing to. As we're told again in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God and Father and kept for Jesus Christ, um, we're not given a specific location like we would with Peter or we would with Paul. We're not given a specific church that is mentioned. It's simply Jude is writing to a general audience or a general church, maybe the universal church, but we can't be sure that he is writing to a group of believers within the first century, and what he writes also pertains to us today. The focus of the letter can be found in verse 3, where Jude implores believers to contend for the faith. The calling here is to take the matters of our faith seriously. He even holds the nuance of attacking with the faith, struggling within the faith. The word contend is taken from a military or athletic context. It's calling for an intense effort on behalf of the believer when it comes to their faith in Jesus Christ, their faith in God, and the faith in the world, in the Word of God. Jude is telling us, and he's telling his original audience, look, you've got to put up a real fight for the faith. And right off the bat, Jude wants his audience to know that to live for Christ is going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. As we live in this world, we must be ready to defend what we believe when it comes to the faith that we have. A similar statement can be found in one of Paul's letters, his second letter to Timothy. He wrote, preach the word. In season, be ready in season and out of season. Peter's first letter, he writes, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, the reason for this calling of alertness that we find in Jude is that there are individuals who have infiltrated the flock or infiltrated the church and the group of believers. Look in verse 4. He says, For a certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is going to draw this out more in verses 5 through 16, which we'll look at here in a moment. What he's saying is there's a warning here for believers. There's a warning here for us that just because something is labeled Christian or a group of body calls themselves Christians, that doesn't mean that they're actually Christian. Jude points out that these people have crept in. It carries the imagery of slipping in, of sneaking in, much like Satan slithered into the garden. He also points out that this is not a surprise to God, that they have already been designated for this condemnation. The meaning is that false teachers and false prophets and false representations of Christ have always been known by God, and therefore he's not surprised. And he gives us this word because we as believers shouldn't be surprised either. At the same time, we have to be aware they're in the church. Now, I'm not saying they're in this particular church, but they're in the church. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Notice what else these people are doing under the banner of Christ there in verse 4. It says they're perverting the grace of our God. This means they're distorting God's grace. Can we understand from Paul's letter when he wrote to the Romans, he says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but we're under grace? By no means. To pervert the grace of God is to have our sin called out. 
It's to feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that need that we need to repent of it. But then we reply, well, I'm saved by grace. And once saved, always saved. What that means is that I'm just going to brush it off, what God is calling me to do. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined as cheap grace. Meaning we understand grace's saving power and what it had over our life, but we're not going to submit to its saving power. We're not going to submit to its transforming power, and we're not going to allow it to sanctify us or separate us from this world. In particular, this group of people who, again, by the way, are in the church, are using this perversion of grace to practice sensuality. That word carries the meaning of a lack of constraint a lack of self-control. Most times in the Bible, it's attached to sexual immorality or a sexual sin. But Judas pointed out, these people don't care. They don't care, and that's why they're perverting God's grace. They're using it as a license to continue in this sort of lifestyle. In the end, they're denying Christ as their master and Lord. This understanding also comes from one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians where he writes, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Also from the book of Romans in chapter 6, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Ultimately, Jude is setting up here. He's saying there are some nominal Christians within the church. To be a nominal Christian means you are a Christian by name only. You don't look like Christ, you don't act like Christ, you don't talk like Christ, you don't walk like Christ. You are continuing to live a life outside of Christ. You are continuing to live a life that does not honor God. It does not obey the Word of God. It does not follow the leadership that God has set in place within His bride. The understanding of Scripture, what a true believer is then, is one who lives their life under the lordship and leadership of Christ. These individuals that Jude points out, and he doesn't even mention by name, he says a certain people. He's saying that you've got to be aware that these certain people, by the life that they're living, he points out that how in the Old Testament, how God dealt with such people. In verse 5, he speaks about what happened in the book of Exodus, how God destroyed those who didn't believe in Egypt. In verse 6, he reminds of how the angels who opposed God were cast out of heaven into eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, which is pointing to the next book in Revelation. In verse 7, he reminds his audience of the results of Sodom and Gomorrah and how they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then the list goes on into verse 8. Like minded these people relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory ones. These individuals are probably saying, well, you know, God told me, or God spoke to me. And you have to hear me, I do believe God still speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. If we're listening, he speaks to us in this very moment as we gather in his name. But these people are making things up that God said, something that contradicted what was already in his word. These people can be recognized because they reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones, meaning they live opposed to those who hold true to God's word. Then jumping to verse 16, Jude says, We can know who they are because they're grumblers. They're malcontents, which means they're discontented. They follow their sinful nature, which means they live by it. They are loudmouth boasters. They never shut up. 
They show favoritism. They brag about themselves. They show favoritism to gain their own advantage. These are loudmouth lobbyists. But here's the thing. They do it all under the banner of Christ. Again, the warning. They can be in the church. This may be why Jude never names a church in his introduction. He may be writing to multiple churches in general. He just may be going out into the street and seeing people who are calling themselves Christians, but they look nothing like Jesus Christ. And so how do we know who these people are that are in a church and are claiming Christianity? We'll look at verses 12 through 13. Jude takes a poetic approach here. It says, these are hidden wreaths at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. First, let's deal with love feast. <laughs> In early Christianity, the gathering of believers was known as a love feast. Christians were once thought just to be another sect of Judaism. But then people started noticing there was something about this group when they gathered compared when Jews gathered. Because this group loved one another. They took care of one another. They broke bread with one another. They had a communion with one another. They worshiped together with one another. They had all things in common. And we probably don't use that term today because can you imagine inviting, hey, why don't you come to our love feast? You might have that be misinterpreted today. So, but that's what Jude is pointing out here. But he's saying that, you know what? These people, they're gathering at your love feast and they feast with you without fear. He says, they're in the service. They're within the body of Christ, but they're in the worship service. They're within the body, and they're there without fear or reverence for who the service or the worship is for. They appear to be leaders, he says. Shepherds feeding themselves. They appear to be leaders, but they're only taking care of themselves. They're not feeding the flock. They're not equipping the saints. He says they are waterless clouds, meaning they appear to have abundance, but they are completely empty. They're swept along by winds. They appear to be stable. They appear to be firm, but the slightest breeze will shake them. They are fruitless in late autumn. They are fruitless in this time and season of bearing fruit. They are twice dead and uprooted. They aren't what they appear because they have no root in Christ. They're not attached to the vine. Therefore, they cannot do anything worthy of Christ. They're wild waves of the sea. It says they're, they're unsteady. They're unpredictable. They're casting up foam of their own shame. They're... So, they're wandering stars. They're supposed to shine and be a light. They're supposed to be a steady force. But they wander from one thing to the next, and they change their mind back and forth, and they grab onto this idea and then this idea, and you just cannot trust them. And he says, 
for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, speaking that eventually they are going to be snuffed out. So I know what you're thinking. You come to Jude, and we come past Thanksgiving. We're moving towards Christmas, and it doesn't really seem like a very uplifting type of message. We don't want to feel like I'm going to leave here and say Merry Christmas or Happy Thanksgiving to somebody. But the truth is, this is the Word of God. And what God is trying to do through this letter that Jude wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit is to awaken his people so that we can be aware of the dangers that can creep into our life. Beware of the dangers that can creep into your family's life. Beware of the dangers that can creep into the life of the church. It's an uplifting message because our God loves us so much. He wants us to be aware and beware of those who are trying to slither into our lives and pull us away from the truth. It's because of this, Jude starts out again in verse 3, contend for the faith. He starts there because this is going to be hard. And at times, it's not going to be the popular opinion. At times, society is not going to agree where the church stands when it comes to the Word of God. As we come to Christmas season, I'm sure we're all aware that there are going to be things out there that are supposed to represent Christmas but have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Nothing. So we live in a nation where we have one nation under God in our currency. Can we honestly say that our nation as a whole lives that way? Can we honestly say that every leader in a place of authority leads that way as a nation under God? Who turn on the radio or the TV or a podcast and we listen to preachers or individuals who have that title of preachers. We have to be aware that just because they have the title doesn't mean they're actually preaching the word of God. It doesn't mean they're actually feeding the flock. It doesn't mean they're equipping the saints for ministry. As we listen to music that are categorized as Christmas music or even Christian music, we have to realize there are things out there that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ, even though they have that title. If we go to Christian bookstores, we have to be aware there are authors in the bookstores that have made best-selling lists that have nothing to do with the Word of God. They have worldly ideologies. And so Jude is telling us, contend for the faith. Again, that begins individually. Then it begins in our home. Then it begins in the church. So it brings it up to our two questions. How should we live and what should we do? Before Jude answers these questions, he again reminds us that these type of people, these false Christians, these false Christianities have not surprised God. Look at verse 17 and 18. But you, you must remember, beloved, the predictions or the prophecies of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Again, he's reminding us, he's reminding this group of believers, these type of Christians and these false Christianities, they have not surprised God. We've been seeing in our study in the book of Revelation on Wednesday night that whenever the enemy appears in Revelation, he always appears with some imitation of Christ. 
He always appears that he is like Christ. But it always reveals that he has no authority of Christ. Every now and then at the Hurchin household, we like breakfast for supper. It's one of our favorites. And so we'll have like bacon and eggs and biscuits and gravy. And uh, there's rarely any leftovers. But when I go to the grocery store to get the supplies to make breakfast for supper, I don't go to the grocery store looking for imitation bacon. I want real bacon. No amen? Richard gave an amen? (laughs) We want the real thing. We want the fat stuff, the stuff that's got the grease that goes in the pan so you can make that gravy. We, We want the stuff that tastes good, maybe even the thick stuff. You know, when I go to the grocery store to get the eggs, I don't go look for plant based eggs. I don't look for soy eggs. I understand some people have dietary restrictions, they eat that, but I go looking for real eggs. I want to make a big thing of egg scramble or egg omelets or whatever. I want the real thing. What Jude is pointing out is that these are imitations. You may, they may look like it. They may even sound like it at times, but they're imitations of Christ. And Jude's instructions in verse 20 through 23 is to calling us as believers, as God's people, as the beloved, be the real thing. Don't be an imitation. Satan is an imitator. And those who follow Satan's model are imitators of Christ. But as God's people, we are to be the real thing, the real example of Christ. And this is going to be frustrating, which is why we have to contend for the faith, because there are going to be false prophets that arrive that people are going to follow and listen to and applaud. There are going to be false teachers that write books and have podcasts and things like that, and people are going to follow them. They're going to be led astray. And Jude says, look, be real. Don't be an imitator. Don't be a fake. Don't be a false. Live a life that is submitting and obeying and living for Christ. He says, don't match what you see in verse 16. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be discontented. Don't be loudmouthed. Don't submit to your sinful nature. Don't show favoritism. Because the end result is that they are worldly people, verse 19, and they are devoid of the Spirit. You know, they don't belong to God. Because if I have the Spirit inside me and you have the Spirit inside me, that means we belong to Him. We're His. That's an eternal inheritance. So this is what He tells us to do. Verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. What that means is build on faith. Thomas Schreiner writes that believers are to build on faith's foundation in order to preserve themselves in God's love. The foundation of a believer's faith is the complete work of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He's the cornerstone. Christianity ends and begins with Christ. If you want to write anything down, here it is. Christ is the point. (laughs) Period. And so we are to build on that. The most holy faith is pointing to what we call the gospel or the good news of Christ. What Jesus Christ did, what God did for us in his love. To build on our faith, we have to remain in Christ 
who is the living word of God, we must remain in God's word, and we have to allow it to be our sole source of wisdom, guidance, instruction, and understanding. That word build is to pile up. He's saying build on your faith. Pile up your faith. Continue growing in your faith. Continue growing in your relationship with God. Keep building on it. Because as God's people, we are see this world through the lens of God, which is revealed through the word of God and the spirit that dwells inside of us. But not only are we to contend for the faith then, we are to build our faith, which means to grow. Philippians 2.12. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The phrase work out implies this is going to be a continuous and strenuous effort on our part individually. I cannot work out Ethan's salvation. I cannot work out Abby's salvation. I cannot work out Jamie's salvation. I can lead them. I can guide them. We can have talks about the Word of God, but Ethan has to take his relationship with God as his personal own. He has to own it. He has to work it out himself. Work out your own salvation. So it begins individually. And then when we gather in the name of the Lord to form the bride of Christ, it moves into becoming corporately. The Bible is telling us as God's people, we are to be faith builders, which means we're called to grow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul had to write to the Corinthian believers because they were not doing this very thing. And if you read through that letter, you'll see what happens when they were not building upon the faith and working out their own salvation. There was divisiveness in the church. They were arguing with one another. They were believers believing that they were better than other believers. Well, I was saved before you. Well, I give more to the church than you do. I'm more involved in the church than you are. I've got better spiritual gifts than you are. And so there was this divisiveness. They didn't see themselves as the family of God. They didn't see themselves as being unified under Christ. They weren't being known by their love, which 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul lays out love. They weren't growing. That was the issue. He wanted to give them solid food, but he could only give them spiritual milk because they were not building on the faith. They were not growing in the understanding of God. They were not growing in the understanding of the work of Christ. They were not growing in their understanding of a new calling that God had given them. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's from the letters to the Corinthians. But they weren't growing, so they weren't understanding those things. Second thing, praying in the Holy Spirit, there in verse 20. Depend on God. The idea of prayer is to remind us that prayer shows our reliance upon God. We pray to God because God can only do things that we can't do. And so we have to rely upon his power. But you're saying we can't pray to God without the Holy Spirit inside of us. Because if I don't have the Holy Spirit, that means I'm not a child of God. Therefore, I can't refer to God as my father. And so I pray in the Holy Spirit because he's given me the Holy Spirit, and I can pray in that power. And so we live a life which depends on God as the source of our provision and our blessing. Here's the thing. We have nothing, and we are nothing without God. We are completely lost. We are lost in our sin. 
And so what prayer does is remind us that we are to be completely dependent upon God. Just as we were completely dependent on God to send his son Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And so now we are to be completely dependent upon God through prayer for him to do what only he can do. In our life, our family's life, in the life of the church, at your workplace. Third thing, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. He's saying, look, remain in God. This is the reason you have to contend for the faith, because things are going to try to pull you away from that. You have to fight for your relationship with God. This is why we build on the faith, so we come to a deeper understanding of God. We remain in Him. We remain in His presence. The word keep here holds a couple different meanings in Scripture. First, it means to guard. So guard yourselves... In the love of God. It's calling us to protect our relationship with God. And the reason Jude is led to do this, because we pointed out already early in this letter, that there are going to be individuals that are going to come into our life and the life of the church that are going to try and lead us astray. So protect that relationship. Keep it. Guard it. But that word keep also holds another meaning in Scripture. It holds the meaning of abide. Abide yourselves in the love of God. To abide means to stay, to remain. And that may sound kind of static or passive, but it also holds the meaning of continuing. So that simple phrase Keep yourselves in the love of God. You're saying, look, God is telling us, you've got to guard and protect your relationship with me. And the way you do that is you remain in my presence, but you also continue to follow my lead. You stay with me. It's a calling to pay very careful attention to our relationship with God and make sure that we stay alert. We stay awake for the things, whether it's things or people that are trying to pull us from that relationship. Fourth thing there in verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Same being mindful of the end. Someday Jesus is going to come back. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It could be next week. It may not be in our lifetime. But someday Jesus Christ is coming back to take those who belong to him to their eternal home. When you look through the book of Acts, when you look through the letters written by Paul and Peter and James, you'll find that the early believers lived their life in such anticipation that he could come back right now. He could come back at any moment. Matter of fact, Paul actually had to get on to some unbelievers because they were becoming stagnant. They were getting rid of all their stuff because, well, he's going to come back any day. I don't need to have anything. And so when he comes back, I'll be ready because I have no attachments to this world. But what we're, we're being told is we have to be mindful of the end. We, we cannot become attached to the things of this world more than we are attached to our relationship with God found in Jesus Christ. The reality is a lot of us and a lot of Americans, what we live for is the next paycheck. 
We live for the next vacation. Well, the Bible here is telling us to stop living for those things and live for the anticipation that he's coming back. And that will change your view on a whole lot of things in this life. We are waiting for Christ. And what Scripture points out, and I would point you to the book of Job, that Job understood that he brought nothing into this world and he's not taking anything out of this world. Everything we own in this world, we don't get to take with us to the next except our relationship with Christ. Fifth thing, verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. He's saying be merciful to young believers. The word doubt carries the meaning of wavering or staggering. And I say young believers, I'm not speaking of a physical age. I'm speaking of their spiritual age. Their spiritual growth. There are some believers, and I don't know if they're in this room or not, but there are some believers who are the same age spiritually today as when they came to Christ. And they've been a believer almost their entire life. They haven't aged, they haven't grown, and they're wobbly in the faith. They're staggering, they're wavering. So the Bible, God is telling us we're to have mercy on them. We're to come alongside them. Maybe we'll see it and they can't recognize it yet. So we come alongside them. We we disciple them. We encourage them. We love on them. The last church I pastored, there was a gentleman there who became a very dear friend. And... uh, we, we would go golfing once or twice a month, and he had grown up in church. He'd been in church his entire life, sang gospel music with his wife, did specials at the church, very involved in the ministry, incredible gentleman. Like I said, we, we would go golfing once or twice a month together, and we'd have conversations, and we would talk, and there was a time we were out on the golf course, and he just came and, and kind of confessed this, that he said, I didn't realize how young I was in the faith until I started attending Bible study and until I started listening to sermons. I hope you do listen to the sermons. And still, until I started paying attention and, and actually reading the Bible on my own. So instead of someone always having to feed me, I began feeding myself through the Word of God. Because I didn't realize how young I was in the faith, how, new, how little I knew or understood about God's Word. And I had been in church my entire life. There might be people like that here this morning. That you are in the faith, but you're young in the faith because you're not growing in the faith. And as believers, we're to come alongside and show mercy. To love on them, to come alongside them. Encourage them. Disciple them. Get them from point A to point B. Let them get a year older and a year older. And to have mercy means we can't get frustrated with them. Because if someone's young in the faith, they're going to do stupid stuff. Because some of us are older in the faith, and we still do stupid stuff, don't we? Six, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This one's simple. Shortest point yet. Be evangelistic. That's what he's saying. Be evangelistic. Be proclaimers of the good news. Be preachers. 
of the things that we've come to understand, the things that we've accepted in the faith. Basically, he's saying, hey, share your salvation. Share it with people. People need to hear what Jesus Christ has done for you. Seventh thing, verse 23 again. Show others, to others show mercy with fear. What he's telling us is we need to show mercy to unbelievers. We need to show mercy to unbelievers that we get along with. And we need to show mercy to unbelievers that we are completely opposed to their views on life. To show them mercy. And I think the greatest way we can show unbelievers mercy is to pray for them. And this is even implying to what Jude has talked about in these false teachers and these false preachers that are within the church. The Bible tells us that we're not to have anything to do with their teaching. Anything to do with the words that come out of their mouth. We're told that numerous times in Scripture, but we are to show them mercy. To pray for them. That fear that is spoken of here in verse 23. We show them mercy with fear. The reason that is with fear, because as believers, we have to recognize that an unbeliever, if they continue down the road they're going, they are going to be eternally separated from God. And so we have a fear in our heart for the destination they're going. If you have a child and you see them doing something that is going to cause harm upon their life as a parent, we do something, right? We react. Sometimes it's in fear. Sometimes it's in anger. Sometimes it's just to get their attention. This is the same idea, is that we see people who are going down the road to hell. They're unbelievers. They're without Christ, without the Spirit. And we fear for them because we know what awaits them on the other side. So we show them mercy because they don't know. We show them mercy so we have the opportunity to be evangelistic. We show them mercy. We pray for them because as believers, we know it is only God who changes hearts. The eighth and final thing, again, verse 23, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Basically saying, we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit. Even when it starts with the word hate, we are to love unbelievers. We are to show the word, world, world mercy, and the only way we can do that is that we go into the world. Meaning we take Christ outside the walls. And we go out there and we see people that are still in their sin. And the reason we get this hard word hate is he's, we're giving this instruction from God. We hate it so we don't fall into it ourselves. We detest the sinful life so we don't fall into that trap that Satan is setting for them. And this imagery is being pulled from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And in there we read, now Joshua was standing before the angel, which is a Christophany, that's Christ in the Old Testament, and he's clothed with filthy garments. He's clothed with sin. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, which is only what Christ can do. The understanding is as God's people, we are clothed in the full righteousness of Christ because we have been forgiven by God through Christ. 
But those who are still in the flesh, which speaks of their sin, are still clothed in the full unrighteousness of their sin. And so we show them mercy, and we love them, we pray for them, we proclaim the gospel to them, all while detesting the sin that has them trapped and bound by the enemy. Again, the flesh is referring to those who are still captured in the sinful nature. And if you're still in the sinful nature, not in Christ, the Bible says you are an enemy of God. And though it's not a verse in the Bible, it's really pointing out to what some people say. Love the sinner, hate the sin. That's what we do. We love the sinner, we hate the sin. Because those who are still in their sin, they just don't know better. And all this comes with a complete reliance upon God. Verse 24 and 25. Now to him. So now he's taking our attention to Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you. There's that word again. To guard you, to protect you. To keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude is calling us to, what God is calling us to through this letter is to be different. The Bible says that we have been sanctified in Christ. The word sanctified means we are set apart. The Bible gives us this promise that now that we are found in Christ, we're no longer found in our sin. God only sees us in Christ's full righteousness. And because of this, we're called to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, which means that we be continually transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. And this has happened. You became a new creation at your salvation. But God is continuing to do a good work in you, and so it is continuing to happen. And that's what takes us back again to verse 3. Contend for your faith. Contend for yourself. Contend for your family, contend for your church, contend for other brothers and sisters in Christ. This brings us to one final question. Looking in verse 23, it says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Here's the question, have you been snatched from the fire? What it means is, are you saved? Are you found in Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Are you a Christian, a believer? If you're here and you're unsure, you know for certain you're not, I want to present to you the gospel that Jude has pointed to. Is that God created you for a relationship with Him. That's your sole purpose on this earth, to be in a relationship with God. And it is sin that separates you from that relationship. And we can try to do good things. We can try to go to church. We can try to read the Bible more. We can do all the things that look Christian, but if we're not found in Christ, we're not Christian. We're not saved. And so it's not about what we've done, but it's about what 
Christ did for us. That he lived a life we couldn't. He died a death we should have. And he rose again. So that we could be completely forgiven for our sins and be granted eternal life if we confess him as Lord and Savior. And we believe that God would love us that much. If you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to come down this time of invitation. Nick's going to lead us in a song. But for my brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the question for us. How hard are we contending for the faith? How hard are we fighting for it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for giving words that are hard sometimes to hear, but you give them because you want us to be aware and beware. Lord, let us be fighters for the faith that we have come to believe in, the hope that we have found in your son, Jesus Christ. Let us stand for truth when all others may go a separate way. Father, we want to be preachers and teachers and proclaimers of your word. I thank you for what you're doing here this morning. I thank you for what you're doing in this room and back at Children's Church. Father, I pray that you continue to be glorified. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior for the first time, I pray that your spirit would come upon them, reveal that to their heart, and they would come down the aisle and let it be known. We give you all the glory for you alone are worthy of and praise in the name of Jesus.